0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm John Martin Bauer, Senior Digital Advisor at the United Nations World Food Program. Today, I'll be guest hosting a special interview with Daniel Huttenlacher, who is the inaugural dean of the MIT's new Schwarzman College of Computing. Daniel is also the Chair of the Board of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation and a member of the Boards of Amazon and Corning. Welcome, Daniel. Wonderful to be with you. It must be an exciting opportunity to preside over the launch of a new college at MIT. and You just co-authored a book on the age of AI and our human future with Eric Schmidt and Harry Kissinger. To get us started, can you tell us about the Schwarzman College of Computing? What challenges is the college rising to? And what new world do you
1: see your students entering into in 10 years? Certainly. So the vision for the college is that computing, which we take very broadly from hardware to software to algorithms to artificial intelligence, is becoming part of the intellectual fabric of every field. And we're used to computing being a tool that we use for almost everything. But computing now really is helping frame how people think about problems and answers in almost every discipline. But the rapid pace and scale of change in the computing arena is really overwhelming the conventional ways that academic research and education gets done. And we see several examples of that at MIT and pretty much everywhere else, such as just the skyrocketing demand for computer science programs and computer science classes. Uh, We also see that the relevant advances in CS and AI often are not accessible to people in other fields because the fields are changing really quickly. So for example, one might use you know, results in mathematics or economics or some other field, but because in CS and AI, the pace of change is so fast, people are trying to use results that are very new. And so how do we really accommodate that in a reasonable way? And then the third thing is that this broad and very rapid applicability of AI and computing technology calls for a much better understanding of its implications more broadly. And I think all three of these are actually relevant to humanitarian AI, but the third one clearly is more so directly and and on the surface. Uh, And the college is really being built to address those three challenges. The, you know, how do we cope with surging enrollments in CS-related classes and programs, How do we make relevant advances available to people outside of those disciplines? And how do we really broaden the ways that we understand the societal implications and broader implications of AI and computing technologies? Changing subjects a little, we have to ask you about your new building.
0: Architects speak about form and function. What's it like working with celebrated firms like Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill? Has our design philosophy informed your team's own thinking on the future of education and your building?
1: Yes, it's terrific working with the SOM team. I actually had the benefit of knowing this team a little bit beforehand. My previous gig was building the Cornell tech campus in New York city on Roosevelt Island, where we, you know, started with, I don't know where you are in the city. <laughs> it's uh, I'm Midtown East. I can see a Roosevelt Island right there. Yep. So, uh, so we changed the skyline of New York with that campus, at least on the the skyline of the East side. And the SOM team, uh, didn't design one of the academic buildings there, but they did the master plan for us. Uh, and so it's, great to be working with that team on, on an actual building design and I guess through the Cornell tech experience, I've learned a lot about working with architects and, um, and I, I think. My view of architecture, and maybe it's my view of many things. And certainly, you know, when we think about humanitarian issues, it's just there and we can't avoid it, which is that difficult problems and lots of constraints and things that look unsolvable actually yields better solutions. And so when I work with architects, I try to really make sure that in addition to design, which they all know and love, that they're really understanding and thinking about the uses of the building, the occupants how this building's gonna work for the people in it. And so Mm -hmm. we've had a lot of great engagement with the SOM team around that for the new Schwartzman College Headquarters building uh, at at MIT. You know, I think there are a few things about the design that, you know, MIT, the main campus was built at a time when buildings were sort of monolithic and off-putting rather than welcoming (laughs) and, and bringing people in. And, and this building, because the College of Computing cuts intellectually across every discipline at MIT, the building physically is intended to welcome you into the building through a lot of visibility into the building, a lot of use of, of glass so that you can see in. But at the same time, glass, uh, not used in a um, in a thoughtful way, poses uh, significant energy use challenges. And so the design is really wonderful. It, the building almost looks sort of like the Crystal Palace or something, you know, the uh, in, in Paris, in the sense of being, you know, very, uh, very highly glazed. But, but the design is such that it's as energy efficient as if it was a solid wall, by using multi-layer glass with significant air spaces in between, but making that part of the design. And so it's uh, it's it's a really uh, Different looking kind of building um, than is on the MIT campus. And I think, you know, we'll call attention and, and cause people to, you know, come see what's going on there. And that's really the the intention of the building. But one of the things that we really had the architects do was spend significant time with the students who are going to be in the building because students are the heart of every university. And it was just great uh, getting some of the student groups really giving you know, the kind of honest feedback that only students can give <laughs> to the architects about what they thought wasn't 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 working with respect to interior design and layout for the ways that students at MIT like to work. Um, and so it's not just the outside, I think that the building will really serve the student and faculty population well, given some of those interactions.
0: Right, so it's about the students, the faculty, it's about the community within the building. And I'd like to, to pivot um, to the book, the age of AI and our humanitarian future, and get us started with a metaphysical question. Uh, I'd like to read something you wrote. During the Enlightenment, Rene Descartes' maxim, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, and tried the reasoning mind as humanity's defining ability and claim to historical centrality. This notion also communicated the sense of possibility engendered by disrupting the established monopoly on information which was largely in the, largely in the hands of the church. We are progressing towards great achievements, but those achievements should prompt philosophical reflection. Four centuries after, Descartes promulgated his maxim, maximum question looms if AI thinks or approximates thinking, who are we? Daniel, who are we?
1: Well, I think one of the things that we try to provide in the book is the framing for all of us to be thinking about those questions. I think one of the things that's really sort of remarkable um, from a historical and philosophical perspective about the era of the enlightenment and thereafter, when we moved from a world where faith was the way that people understood their interactions with the world to a world where human reason and faith, both were ways that people understood the world, is in that timeframe when we moved to reason and faith, the philosophical advancements and investigations and understanding that gave intellectual and then broader societal legitimacy to these kinds of changes and led to democratic forms of government and and other things. Many of those philosophers were people whose day job was something other than philosophy. It was a very different environment. It wasn't the professional philosopher. It was the mathematician or the business leader or the theologian who was writing on these philosophical questions. And I think in many ways, I'd like to draw analogy to the current time and suggest that I think we need that again, that when you have a time of major change, when you have, you know, the enshrining of human reason as sort of being an equal complement to faith, and now we have this new thing that at least simulates human intelligence it's not human reason definitely not reason it's something new and something else we need a broad set of people thinking about the philosophical underpinnings that the the broader societal legitimacy of that kind of philosophical understanding is going to come not just from academic philosophers not just from technology professionals not just from business leaders not just from government leaders but all of the above engaging in a broader philosophical kind of discussion and understanding the historical context, which is also what we really try to walk through in the book. So I think you know my view personally, and I think the view of all three of us as authors is that not only would it be presumptuous for us to claim that we had the answers, but we really genuinely don't. And so what, what we aim to do here is, is really to try to provide some of that historical and philosophical framing and, and start to give everybody the tools for what we hope will be both broader and more informed discussion about AI and our human future based on our understanding of our human past and the new kinds of things that this new artificial form of intelligence really introduces into our daily lives. These are terrific questions, by the way.
0: Thank you, Adia. This is Brent. Uh, he, he's the brain in uh, in Maine. <laughs> That's funny.
1: Well, I have the brain in Maine, I love it.
2: My father's an architecture professor, he was, and um, I actually spent my childhood at the offices of SOM on all the student field trips. So I just perked up when you said SOM, but, uh, you know, I got my start in humanitarian operations while studying architecture and I kind of switched and, you know, it's amazing what can inspire a student and just knowing about these humanitarian crises can change a person's life. And yep.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I've I've had the benefit of being associated with the MacArthur Foundation for about 12 years now. And, you know, that's given me a very different lens into challenges around the world than most academic computer scientists would have.
0: The book you've written with Henry Kissinger and Eric Schmidt includes some very disturbing, can't find another word, but very disturbing warnings to, to humanity about what unrestrained AI could turn into. There's a chapter about what could go wrong with AI powered weapon systems, AI powered nuclear weapons. How did you go through writing that part of the book and could you explain your concerns to the listeners?
1: Certainly. And I think it's very important because you can have sort of a utopian view of technological future and you can have a dystopian view. And in some sense, those two extremes are the easier ones because they're, you know, they're either such an amazing view of a new world that you you get really excited. That often happens with new technologies. or such a scary view that you get terrified. And in our view, it's really the way these things unfold in general is a mix. There's not a utopian or a dystopian future for the most part, Mm -hmm. but part of Being responsible about new technologies, which really, you know, in some sense, I like to always think of a technology as a two sided coin. Mm -hmm. There are positive impacts and negative ones, and you want to take advantage of the positive societal impacts, but really try to limit the negative ones. And I think in warfare, one can see in very stark terms some of the potential negative outcomes. And I think that a lot of the historical parallels that we draw in the book are very relevant today. And that to me is, is a piece of not just what's scary, but it would be really sort of irresponsible to repeat some of that history. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, without going too much into detail, but you know, if you look at the period leading up to World War One, it was a period where there were huge advances in technology in the private sector, in the sort of the commercial realm you know, development of the railroads for new transportation and delivery mechanisms, development of mass production that allowed great things from a sort of consumer and average person's life point of view. You could travel, you could get goods cheaper, but those also had implications for the production of military weaponry and materiel and for the transportation of those and troops to the front lines and that sort of massive increased efficiency in the ability to wage war unfortunately did not affect the way diplomats and military planners thought about waging war and so the you know the sort of pre-industrial era approach to war when it was hard to make stuff and hard to get it to the front lines was move as much stuff as you possibly could as early as possible to the front well maybe that made sense when it was hard to get stuff there but it was a you know, a recipe literally for explosion when you followed that kind of doctrine in this new technological world of the early, early 20th century. And so similarly, we have this new technological world, not just with the development of of AI and sort of more autonomous decision capabilities, but with computing technologies, the internet, you know, connectivity of the world. We're not, you know, if we don't really think through the implications of this militarily we're very likely to end up in a similar situation and you know I think the clearest examples and these are ones where you know the US military has made some pretty definitive statements and has asked other countries to do the same, not all of which have you know about not using AI decision making in lethal weapons that those decisions need to rest with human beings. And I think that that's extremely important but it's only a first step. Because one of the challenges that we talk about in the book, and it's a critical first step, and, and I, you know, I think the US Defense Department is very responsible to have been thinking those things through and articulating it publicly. But it's only a first step in that one of the other things that happens with AI is it rapidly increases the, the pace at which various things can be analyzed and decisions can be made. And humans don't always work at that speed. And so that means really keeping a human in all of those decision loops means slowing the decision loops back down to a human pace. And I think they're very natural, and this gets back to the sort of philosophical and behavioral kinds of issues. If you think that you have an, an AI system that can both operate better and make better decisions than people, and you're really in a, you know, in, in a crisis situation, even if you have a doctrine about not using it, What will you really do? And I I think that these are issues that really, you know, this comes back to the philosophical and moral sort of basis of an AI age and uh, are things that we think are really critical and involve a a much broader range of people. So it's a great, great area that requires more thought. And I guess the other thing I would say, just, you know, working with Dr. Mm. Kissinger, you know, at age 98, he's still quite an intellectual force. And, you know, in the post-World War II, era uh, and a lot of the negotiations around nuclear weapons limitations, he was directly involved in. So that's a piece of history that he lived. And, you know, those are at some level, insane technologies, right? I mean, they're just, it's, it is inconceivable what nuclear weapons can wreak on humanity. And so it called for a really different way of thinking about deterrence and about strategic, weapons and how one thinks about them. And the the mutual destruction type of framework is as insane as those weapons are. But it also has for a half a century now kept us out of a nuclear war. And so, you know, I, I think that there really are new ways of thinking when there are new potential weapon systems that are possible. And that can make the world a much safer place. You can't ever it's never over or done. I mean, it's an everyday thing. But I think you know, those are the kinds of thinking that we need people engaging in, that whatever the analog of that is for, for an age with, with AI and and even AI weapon systems with humans in the loop.
2: This is especially relevant to the humanitarian community. And Jean, you were just in Kabul, and we, we have Sarah Spencer listening in who works for the DFID and You know, you've been in and out of war zones and you've just written extensively on humanitarian AI and kind of what you were saying, the the benefits and the the risks. And, uh, you know, it's really relevant to us in the field because we're very vulnerable to these sort of things. And we see it more directly than a lot of people. Jean, do you have any thoughts on that? Maybe Sarah, you want to mention?
0: Maybe I'll start by mentioning something that uh, Daniel writes about in the book is that we have communities here in the U.S., the Amish, the Mennonites, who have opted out of a world of technology and connectivity. And it seems that that was possible if if you were in the 18th, 19th centuries, 20th century, fine. Well, you can't opt out of AI. You can do everything you want, but it will be around you and will condition your your life outcomes. And therefore, um, one of the takeaways I have from the book is this is already very advanced. Anything we look at online is AI powered. But a lot of the other experiences we have day to day are. So it's, it's infused every aspect of life. And for humanitarians, we're uh, probably going to see a lot more of it, but it's already there. And one of my concerns goes back to, again, I forget exactly where it is in the book, but you, you mentioned that AI is a um, probably an accelerator of inequality. So you'll have AI-rich companies, institutions, states, and AI-poor ones. And uh, there will be a, a divide between both. And I'm very concerned about what that would mean for humanitarian situation or where you could be, um, well, you, you've got more conflict going on because uh, you've got a new tool that's not well mastered uh, around which there isn't doctrine, the ethics of which haven't been fully thought through. And on the other hand, uh, we as humanitarian agencies, we, we will need to learn to ride the tiger essentially. It's, uh, so we'll have to engage. We don't have the choice like the Mennonites and the Amish to say, let's let's just stay out of this, but we will have to engage and understand this more fully. We're, we're not ready now. We'll have to invest in, in capabilities. We'll have to do the dialogues to um, explain what humanitarianism looks like in the age of AI. I can tell you that here at the United Nations in New York, there are working groups thinking about these things. They're very competent people staying up late at night uh, like Sarah is in in Jordan to try to get this right. But this is uh, so pervasive and moving so quickly that uh, we might get caught unawares. That's the the risk. Sarah?
3: Thanks very much. Um, Just to say quickly that while I do work for the British government, I'm currently on sabbatical and so the views I express are wholly my own and not those of my government. I did want to talk about the impact of AI on the nature of conflict, because as you know, humanitarian support and protect the rights of people affected by armed conflict, that's the nature of our work. And that's the, that's the, the primary purpose mm-hmm. of our work. Um, and there's been a lot written about how AI will shape future conflicts, specifically warfare and the tools that humans will use to fight each other like lethal autonomous weapon systems as you've already mentioned but i'd be curious to hear your views as that how what the new types of conflicts we might see you know about the new types of conflicts we'd be likely to see how they'll play out who they'll affect and how that might change the nature of humanitarian action so i think for a bulk of humanitarian workers And those in the aid sector, it's quite clear now today to think about who our key constituents would be. I'm sitting in Jordan. There's a fair amount of refugees, migrants and asylum seekers from around the region, most particularly Syria. But how will AI change who those key constituents might be from an AI driven conflict? And I'm thinking specifically about sort of escalating cyber arms races and a future AI Cold War.
1: Yep, these are great questions. So I I wanted to come back to first, just sort of the broader issue about AI, which I, I see AI as an amplifier or accelerator of both good and bad attributes of humanity. And so I don't put warfare in the good category, but I think one of the questions from sort of a humanitarian point of view is how do we identify the places where we can use AI to help people in conflict zones, to help refugees who may for, you know, significant parts of their life or even their lifetime have to be resettled someplace that's not their homeland because of conflict there. I mean, the Syrians is a great example of that where people are just displaced for really maybe a generation. You know, at at MacArthur, when we started the 100 and Change competition of giving 100 million dollars to one organizational group on a specific problem the, the first award that we made was to IRC to the international rescue committee and, and the sesame workshop because there's a whole generation of syrian children growing up in refugee camps mm-hmm. and you know it's a lost generation and a lost human resource for the syrians and these are places where ai actually can be extremely helpful when you look at how do you educate children in a place where there aren't enough teachers and where there aren't, I mean, some of these amplifiers of positive things, of, of helping provide better medical care in underserved communities of helping to provide better education in underserved communities. It's not just the AI, you need, you know, somebody who can help develop materials in the right languages and, you know, respectful of the cultures and all kinds of other things. But, but these are places where, where AI technology can be very useful. In some humanitarian crisis situations. You know, on the conflict front, everybody now pretty much is dependent on cyber environments. Even in, you know, I mean, the cell phone has become, you know, either the smartphone or at least the not completely dumb phone almost everywhere on the planet. And so, you know, I I think that in less resourced places, on the one hand, maybe one thinks of them as sort of less threatened because they depend less on cyber technology than more developed countries but they also have much less in the way of cyber defenses and the cyber infrastructure that they do have can be much more critical to people's daily lives and ability to feed themselves and their livelihood and so forth and so i I do think that the risk of cyber conflict even in you know, less developed parts of the world and in localized people tend to think of cyber conflict between big nations fighting each other, big wealthy nations fighting each other. But I I think this does have a a lot of applicability, unfortunately, in regional conflicts as well, and and is something that does pose a significant challenge.
0: Well, an example that comes to mind for me, a few months ago, a grain cooperative in Iowa was hacked by a a group uh, that's not well identified, but uh, it seems it's based in Russia. It's affiliated with Russia in some in some way, but it's not part of the Russian state. Uh, but they were able to freeze that cooperative's operations until they paid a ransom. And we also saw what happened with Colonial Pipeline, but the um, the hacking of the cooperative speaks to me as a humanitarian worker, because we're not talking about basic needs. And um, you could envision We'll see envision a future where AIs are deployed to freeze ports, supply chains, and cause uh, harm that we haven't yet imagined. And imagine countries like uh, Yemen that import 90% of their food if you're able to, to freeze the supply chain. Uh, you've got a disaster very quickly. And Yemen is just one country in that state of vulnerability and dependency vis-a-vis imports. Uh, and the same could be said of water various systems that uh, that we need to sustain our, our basic needs in humanitarian contexts but to what sarah was saying about who is in need it is the, the refugees the migrants the asylum seekers and they're not going to have a say in the ais we design and um, the question is perhaps how do we have a dialogue where the humanitarians are at the table to um, bring up these concerns the Parts of your book, Daniel, that mention AI and uh, the need to get around the table and find new rules for the community. Humanitarians need to be there, and hopefully, the most vulnerable communities' interests are kept in mind as we as we draft these new rules. the The Geneva Conventions, for instance, uh, the very first ones didn't cover enough crimes when the, the Geneva Conventions were, I think it was the Hague conventions in the late 19th century, then those became the Geneva Conventions. I mean, it was still okay by the rules of war to starve out civilians until, um, basically until after World War II. And the uh, there was a U.S. Uh, tribunal that, that tried the um, the German general who uh, led the uh, Siege of Leningrad, and they basically let him off a uh, charge of war crimes for starvation in Leningrad because it wasn't on the books at the time. So that, it took... Uh, decades to change. And I think my worry is that we're going to miss an opportunity if we're not proactive enough to influence these very important debates at this time, which is why it's an important book. And uh, Daniel, would you, I mean, do you share the concern about civil society organizations, those furthest behind, the minorities, those who are stateless? I mean, how how do we get them to
1: to have their seat at the table? It's critically important. And you know, again, this issue of AI as an amplifier, we already are in a world where the people and the groups you just mentioned are often ignored, not paid attention to, as people think about developing and deploying technologies, as people think about legal and and regulatory frameworks, as you were saying. Uh, And if you think about AI as an amplifier, then it can amplify those kinds of challenges. And so I think it's particularly important that considerations of those populations are there at the very beginning, and in fact, you know, one of the things that you know I mentioned that in the Schwarzman College of Computing at MIT, the social implications of computing technology are things that that we're looking at and thinking about, and uh, there, two, one is very U.S. focused. It's about sort of systemic racism in the United States and the role that computing and AI can play in exacerbating that, but also in combating it. And that's the thing about many of these, like depending on how it's used, it can amplify in negative ways or it can be used to ameliorate. And then similarly, there's a sort of a research protocol being developed here that helps researchers and early technology developers understand better how to think about the kinds of implications of their technology before they develop it. And and that's actually being done, you know, by people in philosophy and in political science and in other areas of the humanities and social science, in addition to people in computer science and engineering. And that's a tool that, you know, over time we expect to be able to, you know, more publicly share and and release to try to, to help groups think about those kinds of issues.
2: Getting back to the future of AI education, you know, bringing all of this to the table and computational education, this is the future, isn't it?
1: It is. And one of the things we talk about on the educational front at MIT is what we call computing bilinguals, people who understand a given discipline deeply and also understand computing. And bilingualism has different levels of being bilingual, right? I mean. At some nominal level i'm french english bilingual but my cultural understanding is much more deeply american than it is french and you know somebody who's deeply bilingual and and i've lived in france so i mean i have some cultural understanding and appreciation but so i think bilingualism actually is a, a good analogy here you want people who really understand because the the cultures are different in these different academic areas and these different areas of expertise and so Part of what we're doing at MIT in the College of Computing is looking at ways to really educate computing bilinguals and do that in as deep a manner as possible.
3: Can I ask Daniel on that point? I went for my graduate degree. There was a requirement. I got a master's in public policy around the corner from you at, at Harvard, and there was a, a requirement for all public policy candidates to take courses related to ethics and public policy you know, question as to the outcome of how that plays out in public politics in, uh, in the United States and other, other countries. But I'd be curious as to how you and your colleagues at MIT propose to sort of embed ethics into the curriculum. So future developers and designers will be able to tackle those, the can we basket of questions related to AI and and computer science, but the, also the should we?
1: Yep, absolutely. It's a great question. So embed is definitely the key word that was in your question, and that's the approach that we're taking. You know, I think in a public policy program, people are already inclined to think about some of these kinds of issues, and so it may be more natural to have sort of some required courses in the curriculum. What we find often in other areas is that a required course in the curriculum becomes sort of a check the box exercise and not integrated with other things in the curriculum. And I think most business schools suffer from this. They, they all have some ethics class you have to take, but you take it and it doesn't really show up in the classroom anywhere else other than that ethics class. And so the approach that we've been taking is to really look at how do we integrate issues around societal questions, around ethical questions into the curriculum more broadly. We're doing that in a few ways. We have an experiential ethics class that students are encouraged to take that ties to actual project work that they're doing either in an internship at a company or in other classes at MIT. And actually in the Electrical Engineering Computer Science department, that is required for the students doing the sort of the co-op program where they work at a company for a longer time period. Everything at MIT is numbered, so it's called 6A, but it's the the co-op program in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. We also have support in the college for faculty who are teaching computing-related classes to incorporate into the problem sets and into the lectures, consideration of these broader societal and ethical questions. And we have a case study series that we've been curating, because the cases are written by people from all around the world, with sort of about five plus or minus cases each semester. So, you know, 10 10 to 12 cases a year. Two issues of that came out last year. The one, the third issue will be this fall. Uh, And those are publicly available. And then we're working on, and they're intended to be at the undergraduate level. And then we're working through, uh, MIT has this great thing called Open Courseware, which makes a, a lot of MIT teaching materials available. And we've been, developing teaching materials to go along with some of those cases. So when we teach the case, we also are going to make the teaching materials available on OCW, as we call it, on OpenCourseWare. So these are things that we're really looking to integrate into the curriculum in a number of ways. And that's the approach that we think is really important here.
2: But and, great and then also- Sorry to interrupt you one more time, Sean. <laughs> and then being MIT, you know, you need to think about in, how do you engineer ethics and on a, 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 you know, a backend computer level, how do the databases look and how does the, the data handing over and the testing and training and validation. And there's a whole layer beneath, you know, just talking about ethics and, you know, being MIT, I'm sure that's important to you too. Yeah.
1: And that's why when you integrate it into, you know, a computer science systems class where somebody's building something, that that that's the way you get consideration of those kinds of issues. Whereas if you do it in the abstract in some other class, it doesn't actually get tied to practice. This is fascinating, and in fact, I just had
0: a small follow up on that previous exchange on uh, on ethics. And one of the issues we're facing is that if an AI goes wrong, who's liable for it? Is it the programmer? Is it someone else? Daniel, has that
1: been figured out? Is that is this one of the big risks or I don't think it's been figured out adequately, but I think there we do have frameworks for thinking about it. I think that and we talk about this a bit in the book, but maybe this will be a little more actually in depth than what's in the book. So. So the thing about AI is you can't get into its head, just like you can't get into the head of a human being. Right. You know, I don't really know how you come to the decisions you come to. And we don't really know how AI comes to the decisions that it comes to in a given situation. So when AI is making decisions or when humans are making decisions that we really care about the implications they have for people, we have procedures that we use with humans, right? We do auditing, we do monitoring. You know, If you look at something like banking where there's a long history of racial discrimination, there are laws and there are audits to check that people aren't using illegal things like race and making those decisions. And I think you know very similarly with AI, the responsibility needs to lie with the organization that's using it. And it needs to be appropriately audited and monitored, just like we audit and monitor human beings making those kinds of decisions. By having a machine make the decision doesn't mean we should suddenly say, oh, nobody needs to pay attention to that, it's a machine. If it's the same kind of decision people are making, we need to pay the same kind of attention to it that we do when humans make those decisions. So I, I think there are frameworks there already for human decision making that are very applicable to the AI case and that are very important because just like humans can make either badly informed decisions or outright, you know, discriminatory decisions and, and need to be monitored, it's the same thing for technology.
3: Can uh, I, can it's, I it's, a, it's a great
1: question, thank you. Please Sarah, can go I, ahead.
3: Just picking up on that point. What you're talking about, Daniel, sounds a lot like little r regulation to some certain extent. And thinking about the points you made earlier about weapon systems and means of warfare that are insane and inconceivable, like nuclear weapons. As someone engaged deeply on the policy side of new technologies and their impact on conflict, means of warfare, impact on conflict-affected communities, I wonder what hopes you have for nation states, as we know them now, to be able to design systems to regulate AI, and I don't even mean like, you know, whether or not they can politically agree because that's the second hurdle, isn't it? I just mean, you know, the air gap between design deployment of a new technology and the space to develop regulation has gone from, I think, is 125 years between Alexander Graham Bell inventing the telephone and getting to a billion users. I mean, and you could argue that, you know, some candy crush or something or sort of Android software was less than nine months or something. So the air gap between design and deployment and the space for regulation is really, really small. And public policy is nothing if not, and I mean public policy in like a little p little p is nothing if not slow. So I just wonder if we have the tools, the structures if governments are set up in the right way to even think about these, this regulation. And if not, what do we need to do differently?
1: It's a great set of questions to which I won't claim to have answers, but I have thoughts. And partly this is another thing that we're doing at MIT on what we call the AI policy forum where we've been working with OECD, who's been very involved on a intergovernmental basis, looking at AI. We've been working through our Washington office with officials in DC, and we've been doing sort of deep dives in the technology with some global groups to make sure that we're really getting global perspective and not only, you know, highly developed nation, not not only OECD type nations. I think when you come to technology generally regulation is hard. It tends to, even in slower-moving technologies, to trail the technology, not to lead it, and to often get to be wrong pretty quickly. (laughs) And this is a place where I do, you know, my belief is that if you can come up with the right kind of government framing for more informed industry regulatory groups, it can be very productive. And I think accounting to me is just the perfect example of that because I do think it works relatively well. And if the government was trying to keep current accounting rules, <laughs> they, they couldn't do it. They just, you know, they they'd overregulate, they'd underregulate. Like it's just it's very hard for them to have the right level of expertise and engagement. And so you know you you get, you know, organizations like FASB in the US, and you know, every country has one every big country has one of these and they work together to try to have international accounting standards and you know in some sense it's the fear of government regulation that causes those self-regulatory organizations to have some pretty significant teeth with respect to how companies operate uh, or organizations operate I should say because i mean you know private foundations are subject to audit also just like companies are how organizations operate and you know, we can all point to places where industry self-regulation is not serious, but I think there are ones where it is, and we should understand what it is about those ones that works. Because I think the pace with which computing technology generally, and particularly AI, is evolving, you know, if you think about accounting needing to evolve quickly, <laughs> this stuff is, you know, a factor of 100 faster, at least. and. Uh, but I do think there are models there we should be digging into further. And, you know, an audit is an important part of accounting. And so it's not surprising that I mentioned before the importance of auditing the decisions that are made by AIs, just like we do the decisions that are made by human beings when they matter to us. But I I think it's a really important set of questions that you raise there. From the vantage point of your book
0: and your work at MIT and uh, your work on the boards of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, Amazon and Corning, are you optimistic about our ability to leverage technology for good? Do you want to leave any takeaways for students on the subject or offer any inspirational words to get involved?
1: I call myself an optimistic realist or a realistic optimist. I I'm not one of these people who, you know, when everybody drank the social media Kool-Aid back at, you know, back where social media was clearly gonna lead to, you know, worldwide spread of democracy. I was pretty skeptical. And, and I, I actually was involved in some of the earlier studies of, you know, even LiveJournal as one of the early social media systems that nobody remembers anymore. But I'm pretty optimistic about human nature. I just think, as much as this is a sort of depressing time in many ways that we're living in right now, I do believe that when humans can really get together and spend time together, and, you know, the COVID pandemic is not helping with that. It can help you find like-minded people more easily because we're all online, but I do think the human aspect of getting together and not just being remote is important to really sorting out hard problems. And so COVID has sort of, you know, made it in the online world easier to find other people, and the online world generally is that way, but I, I don't think we sort out the hard problems in email and video and certainly not in tweets or Facebook posts. But I I am optimistic fundamentally about human nature and our ability to solve hard problems when we agree that they're hard. And I think many of us do believe that humanitarian problems and societal challenges more generally are hard and important problems to solve. And I do think that AI technologies offer opportunities to help solve those problems. And so in that sense, I'm optimistic. I'm also optimistic by what I see in students today who really are learned about these problems, even when they're an engineering student or computer science, you know, the sort of stereotype engineer, or computer science student just wanted to focus on the technology. That is not what I see today. And so that brings me great optimism. Well, Thank you, Daniel. You write in this book
0: that um, the advent of AI is no less significant than the inve- the invention of the movable type printing press in the Middle Ages or at the end of the Middle Ages. And you're telling us societies of two options, react and adapt piecemeal or intentionally begin a dialogue drawing on all elements of human enterprise aimed at defining AI's role. Charting a human future turns on defining a human role in an AIH. I think you've summed that up there. And on that note, we want to thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And thanks so much for your time. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today so we'll close.